KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio in depth. I'm Matt Leon. So President Trump recently recovered from COVID-19, but he had to be hospitalized for part of his recovery. And as we all know, the coronavirus can be deadly. Now, once again, the president did recover, but this situation did get us thinking about the presidential line of succession. We all know that the vice president takes over if a president can't continue his or her duties. But what about past that? We wanted to dig into this, so we reached out to John Kennedy, professor in the Department of Political Science at Westchester University. Really interesting stuff. And this is really a concept, I think, that more people should understand how it works. Give a listen. So does the line of presidential succession, does it date back to the founding of the country? Was this something embedded in the Constitution and it starts from the beginning? Well, the the Constitution was clear as far as the immediate line of secession. Uh, And so that the, you know, the vice president, of course, is next in line, followed by the Speaker of the House and then the president pro tem of the Senate, which is a position that is given, uh, it really has become a ceremonial position to the individual in the Senate and and the majority side who has the most seniority. It's a position, the president pro tem, which really hasn't grown in particular stature over the years. After that, the line of secession was developed through legislative statute. Uh, And so president pro tem you, you move by statute to the cabinet officers in accordance with the time the cabinet, that particular cabinet office was created. So that, for instance, the three original cabinet officers, uh, state would be next in line. That's seen as sort of the highest of the three original. Then uh, treasury and then defense, which originally was called war. And so after that, it moves down to when the subsequent cabinet officers, you know, where the cabinet positions were created and who holds those today, all the way down to Homeland Security, which was the most recent one created, of course, after 9-11. Of course, there's one caveat, for instance, uh, Elaine Chao is in the line of secession, but you also still need to meet certain qualifications, such as being a natural born citizen. So she she would be exempt from that line of secession or you know, if someone, let's say, was under the age of 35, they wouldn't be able to be in the line of secession as well. So they still need you still need to meet those constitutional guidelines as far as serving as president. What would it take to alter that line? Is that something that would require a constitutional amendment? Would it require simply legislation? Well, the original line, that, uh, you know, president, vice president, speaker of the House, president pro tem, that that would take an amendment to change. Uh, Beyond that, you would just through legislative statute, through congressional law, uh, you could change the the arrangement. Uh, There's some discussion, for instance, you know, of of adding on. You know, that's why, for instance, when there's a State of the Union address, so it's always remarked which is who is the cabinet official who's not in the chamber at the time. And of course, you know, after 9-11, there was some discussion over, you know, should there be some further precautions that, you know, I think one suggestion would be to move after Homeland Security. If you want to go further down the line, you know, you would you one option would be, let's say, to have governors next in line. And one suggestion would be, would be to have governors in order in which that state became a state, 
they ratified the Constitution. So, so you know, after Homeland Security would be the governor of Delaware, all the way down to the governor of Hawaii. So that, but that 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 can be done through legislative statute. Is that something that has? And you mentioned nine eleven. Has there ever been momentum? for that uh, or is it just something that kind of got talked about in the moment of national emergency and as that fades that discussion fades i I think yeah i think that's a good description you know it's oftentimes it takes a real significant crisis to to bring about change like this uh i mean i don't think it would you know if congress did pass such a statute i'm not sure most people would even be aware of it because let's face it well let's hope that we never have a situation arise where it comes into play but you know you're 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 you know, you're, you're kind of getting deep into, you know, hypotheticals of what could happen. And uh, so I guess it's a, you know, it's just kind of inertia that sets in and sort of slows any, any kind of action down of this, of this type. I was surprised when I looked at the line that Senate Majority Leader was not in it, just given, and maybe this is a more product of our politics of the last 40, 50 years, how powerful a position that is that it is not in the line. Well, that, and you and you and you raise a good point. That is, and, and uh, you know, as far as uh, not, not I wouldn't say not fifty years, but just historically, how certain offices evolve and some others do not. You know, the, that's a good example. You know, this, the president pro tem as a position just uh, is it never is mentioned in the Constitution, like the speaker. Uh, the majority leaders are not mentioned in the Constitution. So, you know, we do have a, a House majority leader, minority leader. They're not mentioned in the Constitution. They're not mentioned on the Senate side either. It's just as, as those offices have evolved. You know, another example would be uh, somewhat related, but it would be the filibuster. You know, originally the filibuster w- was present in the House as well. And then it was sort of uh, swept away in the early 1800s. And, you know, it's become obviously a major a point of contention as far as the the current U.S. Senate and had and really has been for a significant amount of time for the last seventy five years. In order to stop a filibuster and invoking cloture, required sixty seven votes prior to the late nineteen seventies when the Senate adjusted it. And so we've seen how the Senate has adjusted it recently uh, as far as judicial nominations are concerned. First uh, at the at the appellate court level, and then. Uh, of course, at the Supreme Court level. So whether we see a further erosion of the filibuster, this is just something that was sort of uh, can or cannot happen as far as the the evolution or devolution sometimes of the of the Senate and and, and its uh, in, you know internal operating procedures. The line of secession, it's strictly the president. This does not apply to the vice president. If the vice president becomes incapacitated, there's not movement up. It would simply eventually be uh, someone named to that position. Am I correct? It, 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 that's correct. It, the, vice, know, the vice president was incapacitated. We, we had a similar situation, uh, not incapacitation, but you know, when Spiro Agnew was forced to resign you know, a year or so prior to, to Richard Nixon, the current president then appoints a replacement, which does require the confirmation in the Senate. So, you know, that's something to keep in mind. You know, as far as incapacitation is concerned, the presidential presidents are also, it's more complicated when you have elections involved as we are now close to an election. Much, it's much different than, for instance, House uh, races for the House or the Senate. Um, you know, the, the things are a little clearer there. Um, you know, if something were to happen to a, 
let's say, a newly elected House member uh, or senators, there are certain rules in place which which guide us as far as uh, calling special elections, you know, which we don't have as, as far as presidential elections are concerned. Or for senators, uh, you know, governors can replace an, an interim, can, can name an interim senator. Uh, this, this happened in uh, a similar situation in, in 2000 when Mel Carnahan, who was running for the U.S. Senate in Missouri, tragically died in, a, in, a, in an airplane crash a few weeks before the election. But his name remained on the ballot, but, uh, and he ended up winning, defeating the incumbent John Ashcroft. But it was understood that his wife, Jean, would take his place and then serve out those first two years until a special election was held in 2002 to, to fill out the remainder of it. Yeah, so kind of going to that, there was these were some kind of line of secession adjacent scenarios I wanted to talk about because the two the the two nominees this year, 74-78, the president obviously was stricken with the the COVID-19 virus. So I, I think these are uncomfortable conversations and to a point gruesome, but they're also questions you'd like to have clarity on before they become necessary to to talk about so we're as we're talking here we're a week before the election millions of ballots have already been filled out what happens if a presidential candidate withdraws because of scandal or health or tragically were to pass away this close how would this play out okay so there are a couple a couple of scenarios and they're all predicated on when when such when such an event would occur so let's say, you know, the, the candidate, you know, just go st- take a step back. If let's say there was some scandal or, you know, something happened to a, a nominee after they officially received the nomination at the convention, both the RNC and DNC do have in place provisions for replacing the person at the top of the ticket. More than likely, it would go to the person who was who's selected as vice president. At this latest stage, of course, that's that's not a possibility. Once the ballots have been printed and once the ballots have been sent out, and of course, people have now been voting in some states like North Carolina for weeks and weeks, uh, then you have a whole different set of rules. So, you know, the first date you, you would look at is December 8th and December 14th. Uh, December 8th is what's considered safe harbor. Uh, that's the that's the date when this when the state votes really need to be certified. So, you know, if there's any after the election in a state like Pennsylvania, if there's any controversy and such, that's when the, 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 the votes really have to when the state has to certify the results. And then December 14th, which is the Monday after the first Monday after the second Wednesday in December, that's by statute. That is when the electors meet. That's when the Electoral College meets in all the 50 state capitals across the nation. So that's December 14th. Now, it depends upon whether or not the state itself bounds the electors. Are they bound to vote for the candidate they're pledged to? In 32 states, the states do bind the electors. In, in most states, they, they, you know, it, 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 the electors then are bound to vote for either the candidate themselves, who may not even be around, or the vice president, presidential candidate. In Pennsylvania, however, electors are not bound. So, you know, keep that in mind. If this were to happen in Pennsylvania, the electors are not bound. They're not forced. These And these are real people, 20 people in Pennsylvania that the Republican Party has selected and the Democratic Party has selected. They are real people who are going to go to Harrisburg on December 14th. 
The only question is, is it going to be the 20 Republicans or the 20 Democrats who get to go and cast a ballot? But when they get to go and vote, they get to vote for, they're not bound, they can vote for whoever they wish. Okay? If the winner, let's say something, let's say the, the winner dies after December 14th, after the electors meet, but before Congress certifies on January 6th. So there's about a month window there where the electors are bound, where they've voted, but Congress hasn't officially certified the results. That's not entirely clear. Uh, the 20, 20th Amendment stipulates that the vice president becomes president if that's the issue. But it's an open question whether the vice president officially becomes president-elect after the Electoral College vote or not officially the president-elect until after this Congress certifies. Now, that's somewhat of a minor detail, but... The vice president would become, in that scenario, most likely the president. But it's a question of whether, you know, the title itself is president-elect until you have to wait until January 6th. So it's not entirely clear. But what if Congress rejects uh, and does not certify the results because of controversy? That's where you really get into, you know, sort of nightmare scenarios where, uh, you know, where the House essentially themselves can select the president from the top three finishers. The other, you know, what happens if the, if, you know, the president is going to inaugurate on January 20th, the new president, uh, but if the winner dies after Congress certifies on, on January 6th, that one's pretty clear, then the vice president is sworn in on January 20th. I mean, the mo- overall, the most likely scenario that is going to happen is that the vice president is going to be sworn in on January 20th. But again, there's, there's, there's no guarantee if Congress decides not to certify the results. Is this a whole situation that you think should be made a little clearer and a little simpler? I mean, we're kind of in extraordinary times these days and, uh, but Overall, it seems like there's just enough ambiguity built into this that it could just make it re- make it really yeah. ugly. It could, and, and and in fact, you know, two things. First, this this a similar situation did unfold in the election of 1876, uh, which was the 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 Hayes Tilden race, in which three states sent competing groups of electors, and it was left to the U.S. Supreme Court to decide which electors to pick. And the Supreme Court, which which was tilted towards the Republicans, picked Hayes as the president, even though Tilden had won the popular vote. But again, you know, history, here's where history comes into play. As part of the deal, uh, the Republican Party agreed to end Reconstruction the following year. So, of course, you know, the impact that that had on certainly life in the South uh, was considerable. You know, but back to your question, yeah, should these things be tidied up a little bit? Of course, and. But if you look at our whole system, you know, we're in the midst of what could be, you know, potential, you know, electoral anarchy here as far as what's going to happen as far as voting by mail and such. So, you know, when you look at all the, you know, at this time, that's probably a little bit down the list of things that need to be tidied up. But, you know, if the election were to go to the House of Representatives, it's not that the House, it's not a majority rule. Uh, It's a majority of each state delegation. Uh, And so... You know, we have so, you know, right now the Republicans have a majority in 26 states uh, delegations Uh, that could change. I mean, you have you have some single 
you know, Democrats could pick up the one at-large seat in, in a place like Alaska or Montana and the whole delegation flips. Uh, or in Pennsylvania right now, where the delegation is, is eight to eight. Uh, if the Democrats or Republicans were able to pick off one or two seats there, it would flip. Um, so, and, and, you know, the true nightmare scenario that I often discuss with my students when we discuss the Electoral College is this. You know, what happens if it, go, if it goes to the House of Representatives, the House picks from the top three finishers. The Senate selects from the top two finishers. So let's say you have a situation in which the House selects uh, the, the, you know, no one receives a majority, 270. The House picks from the top three finishers. What happens? We have, we have 50 states. <laughs> what, what happens if there's a 25 to 25 tie? Or, you know, if some states are, are, are deadlocked, like Pennsylvania today, you could have a 23 to 23 tie. There, there's, no, there's, no, there's no hidden, you know, clause in the Constitution that, you know, says, well, let's, you know, we're going we're gonna to flip a coin or, you know, we're going to draw straws to see who the president's going to be. There is no, there is no way to play this out. And, you know, further compounding that, you, you really go to, you know, again, the odds are that this wouldn't happen. But, you know, we, we have a situation today that elections are, we have a pretty inelastic electorate. The elections over the last several cycles have been extremely close. You could have a situation in which the president, uh, let's say the House, and this this almost played out in the 2004 election. If there was a a shift of a few states that were very close, that was a very close election, uh, you could have had a situation in which uh, uh, we ended up in a 269-269 tie in the electoral vote. Again, the odds are that that's not going to happen, but it could happen. You know, the, the, the vote's going to be somewhere, and it's possible in, a, in close elections, things fall a certain way. You have 269, 269. We could have had a situation in 2004 in which the House of Representatives, presumably because the Republicans controlled the most delegations, would have selected George W. Bush to, you know, a, a, to return him as president. But if the Democrats, let's say, had, and they, they lost the Senate that year, but let's say they had held the Senate or had the Senate, they could have selected John Edwards as the vice president. So you, you can't have, there's a scenario out there where you could have a, a bipartisan presidency where the president and vice president are of a different party. Uh, so, you know, you, you, I, you could sit around day and night thinking about all these hypotheticals that can happen. Uh, but, you know, frankly, the reality of, of what's playing out today as far as our elections are concerned and all the confusion as far as voting is concerned and voting by mail is concerned uh, and when votes are going to be counted, are they going to come in? Are they going to count up to three days after the election? Are they going to close at eight o'clock on November 3rd? Uh, you know, I, we really don't even have to spin out these hypotheticals to be concerned about what is, what is actually taking place today. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio in depth. You can listen and subscribe to the podcast on the radio.com app or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.